You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Sigal Samuel, filling in for Arielle Jamross. I'm a staff writer for Vox, and I focus on technology and how it affects vulnerable populations. The other day I was doing some reading on my iPhone, as one does, and I clicked onto a new report. The title was Uyghurs for Sale. Uyghurs are a minority ethnic group in China. They're mostly Muslim, and they're concentrated in a northwestern region called Xinjiang. Three years ago, China started sending Uyghurs to internment camps en masse. I'm talking about an estimated one million people. The new report was released by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. It says that more than 80,000 Uyghurs have been transferred to factories in China, where they're performing what likely amounts to forced labor. And according to the report, these factories are in the supply chain of 83 major companies, including tech giants like Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. In fact, the report suggested that the selfie cameras in the iPhone 8 and iPhone 10 may be made using Uyghur forced labor. After reading that, I looked down at the iPhone 8 in my hand and thought, oh no. No, 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 no. Am I complicit in forced labor? Are we all complicit? And what should we be doing as governments, tech companies, individual consumers, to make sure the tech products we all love and use every day aren't costing somebody else their freedom. This is Reset. We're going to start with a little background on the Uyghur people themselves. And for that, I talked to Darren Byler, an anthropologist at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He studies surveillance systems in China. I asked him why China has been targeting Uyghur people in particular. The Uyghur homeland in in northwest China is home to around 20% of China's natural gas and and oil, uh, even a larger percentage of coal, and around 84% of Chinese cotton. It's a central uh, source for natural resources for the Chinese economy. Um, And it's also seen as a key zone on the Belt and Road, which is one of China's big development initiatives. Um, And so since the 1990s and 2000s, the Chinese state has been trying to extract resources from Uyghur land, and that's produced a lot of tension between Uyghurs and uh, the Han population, which is the majority group in China. I have also heard that China sort of accuses the Uyghur people of both extremist or terrorist thinking and of separatism. Can you speak to that a little bit? Right. So in the 1990s and 2000s, well, until 2001, uh, Uyghurs were primarily desc- described as separatists, as wanting to have their own homeland and have sovereignty over their, over their native land. 
that began to change after September 11th. Um, and instead of uh, separatist incidents, uh, which were basically protests over their land being taken, um, Uyghurs started to be described as terrorists. So the, the kind of global discourse of Islamophobia was taken up by the, by the Chinese state and this whole group of people was labeled as potential terrorists. So that's how this discourse kind of came into being and has now been used to justify all kinds of, of extra legal things that have been done to the Uyghurs. And one of the extra legal things that's been done is placing them in internment camps, right? Right. Most of the, the charges had to do with their internet activity, them uh, using a WeChat, which is a, a social media app to discuss Islam. So over the last three years, over a million people have been sent to these camps. And what happens in these camps? What's the purpose of them? So the state describes them as vocational training centers or re-education centers. They function as medium security prisons. So they're, they're fortified, locked dorm-style uh, cells where people live collectively. There, there's a series of rules that they have to memorize that are on the wall that say you'll never talk about Islam, that you'll always honor Xi Jinping and, the, and respect the Communist Party, those sorts of things. Um, and, and throughout a, a, daily, a, a week, uh, they're, they're asked to write self-criticisms, um, and then they present these self-criticisms to what is called a life coach or life teacher, um, and um, discuss their their former crimes, which was studying the Quran or going to the mosque, um, and how they've learned like now that they should not do those things. Wow. Okay, so this helps us put this new report into context. So the report alleges that China's been moving Uyghurs from internment camps into factories, and that the working conditions there strongly suggest forced labor, tainting the supply chain of major companies, like Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Samsung, Sony, Nintendo, and there's Clothing companies, too, like Nike and Gap, and also car companies like BMW, Volkswagen. But how can we know that factories supplying these brands are tainted by forced labor? Where's the evidence coming from? The evidence is coming from government documents uh, that, that show us quite directly um, the process with which you know, workers are assigned to work and sent to work in these factories. There's a process with which the manufacturer will put in an order for a certain number of workers. The minimum order is 100, and you basically rent their labor for the period of time that you want. This, the state su subsidizes the, this transfer of workers um, and doesn't really place any regulations in terms of you know, what the workers are paid. Um, and so that's part of the, the way that this is incentivized and, and operationalized. Um, and if you visit these factories, if you're able to do that, especially if it's an unplanned visit, you'll be able to observe the sort of fortifications that are in place, the surveillance systems and all of that as well. Can you tell me more about what those fortifications look like, what the surveillance is like in those factories? So there's often razor wire around the compound that, that, and, and dormitories where the, where the workers are held. Um, that restricts their movement, of course. And then there's the surveillance systems, camera systems. Um, they're using an app um, on people's phones to track their movements, in, at least in some locations. Um, they f check their phones regularly using devices that will scan through their phones and in a matter of seconds to decide or see if they've um, been looking at any unauthorized material or sending un unauthorized material. They're also checking in on them at, at night. They're teaching them Chinese at night. Yeah, teaching them Chinese and also just general political indoctrination, like loyalty to the Communist Party, swearing off Islam. 
And the report even says there's a psychological dredging office where officials check in on the workers' thoughts. It sounds pretty intense. Well, I think one thing that's interesting is that many of the the people I've talked to who are in the camp and then were sent to work in factories um, have said that going to the factory was a relief. It was better than the camp. Everything was so tightly controlled in the camp. They said that once they were in the in the factory space, they were still watched, um, but they had more autonomy. They could like, you know, work at their own pace to some extent. They could, you know, scratch their head if they wanted to. Um, in the factories, in the camp space, everything was controlled. That you know couldn't cover their face with their hands because the camera systems would alert the the guards if they did that. Yeah, that's a pretty low bar for freedom, being able to scratch your head or cover your face for a second. Wow. To the best of your ability to reconstruct it, what do you think an average day in the life of one of these factory workers looks like? My sense is that they wake up, um, you know, to uh, the sound of an alarm. They make their beds um, quickly, and then there's often an inspection. That's what the the military-style management looks like. Um, and then they board a bus if it's if their dormitory is far from the factory and they arrive. As they arrive, they're often checked by police. They might have their phones checked at that point. Um, they scan their ID card. They, they might have a phone scan as well. And then they begin to work. But how is China justifying this to its own people? Is it saying, hey, we're actually doing these Uyghurs a favor. We're giving them jobs? They are saying that, yeah. They're saying that they're doing a very good job of, of um, doing counterterrorism. They say there haven't been any violent incidents. There's been no protests um, for the last three years because of the camp system and the policing. They also talk about the school system, the camps, um, and the job creation programs, or what they sometimes describe as poverty alleviation, um, as a benefit for the Uyghurs, that this is a kind of a benevolence on the part of the state to care for them and to provide them from, with jobs, to kind of pull them out of poverty. When you first saw this report and you read that all of these companies whose products you and I use, you know, are potentially tainted by forced labor, what was your initial gut reaction? The technology stuff being being implicated in this way was sort of a, a revelation to me. Most of what I focus on in my research into forced labor here has been focused on textile manufacturing. Um, and so I wasn't surprised to see Nike and others implicated um, because I've been tracking that for some time. Um, but to see that all of these tech firms are, are also sourcing you know, component parts of their, of their products in this way, um, that was a, a surprise to me. Um, and it means that manufacturing in China, made in China itself, is something that should be rethought. Darren Byler is an anthropologist at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Coming up after the break, we hear from a Uyghur activist and a China expert who can help us answer the question, what can we do to make sure we're not complicit in forced labor? Yes, I decided to expose the uh, crimes against humanity that perpetrated by the uh, Chinese communist regime in my homeland. This is Roshan Abbas. She's a Uyghur activist in the U.S. 
In 2018, a year after the Chinese government started the mass movement of Uyghurs to internment camps, Rashan started to speak out publicly against it. As retaliation by the Chinese government, my sister Gulshan Abbas was abducted six days later, and she became a victim for my activism here in America. My sister always was a law-binding, ordinary citizen living just a simple, altruistic life. All she wanted to do is help people as a medical doctor. Since she vanished on September 2018, we have absolutely no information of her. We don't know where she is, and China has um, allowed no contact with her since her disappearance, and has not even provided a proof of life uh, or any information on her whereabouts. Rashan has been trying to trace her sister's whereabouts and believes that she was sent to an internment camp. Well... It's terrible feeling, you know, when you realize that you are the reason for your sister's suffering somewhere. But at the same time, if I don't speak out about this and somebody else doesn't and they all think about themselves and do not be the voice for those voiceless people back home, who's going to do the right thing? Who's going to... um, let the world know about China's crimes against humanity. Unfortunately, my sister's story is not unique. China harasses the Uyghurs in diaspora with relatives back home, presenting them with heartbreaking choice. You keep your silence about the horrific abuses or let your family, friends, your loved ones will suffer the consequences while I choose to speaking out. Rashan has been meeting with senators, representatives, Basically, anyone in government who will listen. Her message is simple. Continuing to do business as normal with China today is being complicit with genocide. So history will always remember those who act and those who fail to do so. I asked Rashan what she thought about the report that says Uyghur labor is being used to make tech and other products in factories. I'm furious at the Chinese government, and I'm furious about those companies. They are complicit with such an immoral um, practice in today's world. So my question is this, um, you know, who is the buyer of my sister's forced labor? Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask those companies, have you checked for forced Uyghur labor? Are you complicit in China turning my sister, a medical doctor, into a textile worker or um, as a forced laborer in your factories? I find Rashan's story incredibly powerful. And if there is forced labor in the supply chain of the products we're using every day, no one really wants to be complicit in that. So what should we do? Should we be trying to boycott Chinese products, if that's even possible? Is it a mistake to offload the responsibility onto the consumer? Maybe this is the government's responsibility? I talked to someone who reports on these questions. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, a China reporter at Axios. I think there's two ways to look at this. I mean, there's there's kind of a, you know, whose responsibility should it be? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit of a maybe an ideological question, depending on one's view of the role of government. But beyond that, there's the pragmatic side. So let me give you an example of what I mean by the pragmatic side. 
I, uh, as someone who has followed Xinjiang for uh, almost a decade and is very familiar with the gross human rights violations that have been occurring there, I am, you know, far more aware of this issue than the average American consumer. Mm -hmm. So one of the products um, that is most deeply tainted by forced labor um, among the Uyghur community in China is cotton products, so textiles. Mm -hmm. I have personally decided, or a few months ago, I decided that I would stop buying any cotton product that was made in China. And this was essentially impossible. <laughs> it was extremely difficult to find anything. You know, sometimes I could find something made in Vietnam or made in Bangladesh. Uh, but, you know, if I wanted the right size, the right color, the right, you know, what I was looking for, it was essentially impossible. I would have had to switch to shopping at thrift stores in order to not participate in that supply chain. The problem here is that the supply chains around so many products are so globalized and so intricate. So there could be a little piece here, a little piece there, you know, from a different part of a product, whether that's a tech product or a clothing item or a shoe, and it's almost impossible to trace, you know, if it goes back to a particular factory. It's very difficult, um, especially for a consumer, to, to be able to trace this back. In fact, it's not just difficult for the consumer. It's incredibly difficult for the specific U.S. government office that is tasked with this very job. And that is the Forced Labor Division at, the, at CBP the Customs and Border Protection Office in the Department of Homeland Security. And its job is to look for, to trace back supply chains and to find that culpability, to find that factory that's making those goods with forced labor. But how do they prove that link? How, how does the forced labor division prove that something was made using forced labor? In any country where there's forced labor, that country is very likely or that locality is very likely to make it difficult or impossible for outside people to come in and do audits or reviews. So it is very difficult. So they rely on uh, reporters. They rely on NGO reports. But that's not enough. They have to have, you know, legally verifiable, you know, precise uh, links. And I, I just want to emphasize again that it that it's actually illegal for any product that has been made use in whole or in part using forced labor to enter the United States to be imported. That is illegal. And any U.S. company that is caught doing that, uh, you know, with knowledge of doing that uh, is committing a crime. Do you think that also the companies that are implicated in this new report, should they be conducting human rights due diligence on their, the factories in their supply chain in China and get kind of independent audits so that they can prove to themselves and to the public that their products are not tainted by forced labor? They should, but this is the this is really the crux of the problem, and that is that independent audits really aren't possible in a lot of situations um, in China. I think it's it's really, really difficult to know. And so there's an interesting solution um, that um, two lawmakers are uh, on this week are going to propose. Oh, yes. To Please give me a solution, Bethany. <laughs> Please. Yeah. This new um, bill, which is called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, if it's passed, it will essentially require, it, it, it will uh, put the onus on companies. So there's an, the, the bill, if passed, will make an assumption that all products coming out of Xinjiang in, a, in these certain categories 
are made with forced labor. And it is up to the companies that want to import those products to prove that they are not made with forced labor. Um, and that seems like a very good solution because it's just not possible for CBP to do this massive amount of research. They would need a much larger team than they have. What do you think the chances are of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act passing? This does put a big onus on uh, on companies. It you know creates a lot of work for them, and it will pro- very likely force many of them to you know remove to get their supply chains out of China. That's expensive and difficult, um, and I don't think that you know companies are necessarily going to be super excited about that. So I think we're probably going to see some lobbying against this law. Are there any other long-term protections for? the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in China that you can envision uh, beyond the sort of the legislation that we just talked about? Well, yes. Uh, in fact, the U.S. government, you know, just a few years ago passed uh, a, a pretty tough law that was, uh, you know, written specifically for situations like this. The Global Magnitsky Act created a an expedited way to levy sanctions on foreign government officials and foreign government entities that are complicit in gross human rights violations. You know, this is specifically and exactly the kind of thing that that law was created for. And yet, the U.S. government has not used that law to levy sanctions on the Chinese government officials and government entities that we all know to be complicit in the mass detention camps, in the forced labor. And the reason for that is uh, essentially some within the administration want to preserve all of their leverage or most of their leverage for trade and for trade negotiations. So given that backdrop that, you know, we've been watching over the past couple of years, how hopeful do you feel now that this whole crisis, the internment camps, the forced labor in factories, that that's going to stop soon? Do you think Uyghurs are nearing the end of this nightmare or is that too optimistic? Sadly, I think that is too optimistic. We haven't really seen the Chinese government seriously walking back their policies. I don't see that improving until, you know, the Chinese government really faces true, until they bleed for it, right, until they're really made to bleed for it on the international stage. I don't think that they will be motivated to to stop what they're doing. Bethany Allen Abrahamian, China reporter at Axios, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Seagal. We reached out to Apple for comment. They sent us a statement, which reads in part, We assess our suppliers, including with surprise audits, evaluating over 500 criteria to ensure compliance with our code of conduct and to identify improvement areas. We have zero tolerance for forced labor of any kind, and we have found no evidence that forced labor exists in our supply chain, but we are continuing to investigate. This is Reset, and I'm Sigal Samuel. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Seagal Samuel. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. We'll be back on Sunday. Later, nerds. Later, nerds.